Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Section 33 of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. South. The Story of Shackleton's Last Expedition, 1914 to 1917, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Appendix 1. Scientific Work, by J. M. Wardy, M. A., Cantab, Lieutenant R.F.A. The research undertaken by the expedition was originally planned for a shore party working from a fixed base on land, but it was only in South Georgia that this condition of affairs was fully realized. On this island, where a full month was spent, the geologists made very extensive collections, and began the mapping of the country. The magnetician had some of his instruments in working order for a short while, and the meteorologist was able to cooperate with the Argentine observer stationed at Gritviken. It had been realized how important the meteorological observations were going to be to the Argentine government, and they accordingly did all in their power to help, both before and at the end of the expedition. The biologist devoted most of his time, meanwhile, to the whaling industry, there being no less than seven stations on the island. He also made collections of the neuritic fauna, and accompanied by the photographer, studied the bird life and the habits of the sea elephants along the east coast. By the time the actual southern voyage commenced, each individual had his own particular line of work which he was prepared to follow out. The biologist at first confined himself to collecting the plankton, and a start was made in securing water samples for temperature and salinity. In this, from the beginning, he had the help of the geologist, who also gave instructions for the taking of a line of soundings under the charge of the ship's officers. This period of the southward voyage was a very busy time so far as the scientists were concerned, for, besides their own particular work, they took the full share of looking after the dogs and working the ship watch by watch. At the same time, moreover, the biologist had to try and avoid being too lavish with his preserving material at the expense of the shore station collections which were yet to make. When it was finally known that the ship had no longer any chance of getting free of the ice in the 1914-1915 season, a radical change was made in the arrangements. The scientists were freed, as far as possible, from ship's duties, and were thus able to devote themselves almost entirely to their own particular spheres. The meteorological investigations took on a more definite shape. The instruments intended for the land base were set up on board ship, including self-recording barographs, thermometers, 
and a Dines anemometer, with which very satisfactory results were got. The physicist set up his quadrant electrometer after a good deal of trouble, but throughout the winter had to struggle constantly with rhyme forming on the parts of his apparatus exposed to the outer air. Good runs were being thus continually spoilt. The determination of the magnetic constants also took up a good part of his time. Besides collecting plankton, the biologist was now able to put down one or other of his dredges at more frequent intervals, always taking care, however, not to exhaust his store of preserving material, which was limited. The taking of water samples was established on a better system, so that the series should be about equally spaced out over the ship's course. The geologists suppressed all thought of rocks, though occasionally they were met with in bottom samples. His work became almost entirely oceanographical, and included a study of the sea ice, of the physiography of the sea floor as shown by daily soundings, and of the bottom deposits. Besides this, he helped the biologists in the temperature and salinity observations. The work undertaken and accomplished by each member was as wide as possible, but it was only in keeping with the spirit of the times that more attention should be paid to work from which practical and economic results were likely to accrue. The meteorologist had always in view the effect of Antarctic climate on the other southern continents. The geologist looked on ice from a seaman's point of view, and the biologist not unwillingly put whales in the forefront of his program. The accounts which follow on these very practical points show how closely scientific work in the Antarctic is in touch with and helps on the economic development of the inhabited lands to the north. Sea Ice Nomenclature by J. M. Wardy, M. A., Cantab, Lieutenant R.F.A. During the voyage of the Endurance, it was soon noticed that the terms being used to describe different forms of ice were not always in agreement with those given in Markham and Mill's glossary in the Antarctic Manual, 1901. It was the custom, of course, to follow implicitly the terminology used by those of the party whose experience of ice dated back to Captain Scott's first voyage, so that the terms used may be said to be common to all Antarctic voyages of the present century. The principal changes, therefore, in nomenclature must date from the last quarter of the 19th century, when there was no one to pass on the traditional usage from the last naval Arctic expedition in 1875 to the Discovery Expedition of 1901. On the latter ship, Markham's and Mill's glossary was, of course, used, but apparently not slavishly, founded, as far as sea ice went, on Scoresby's made in 1820. It might have been adopted in its entirety, for no writer could have carried more weight than Scoresby the Younger, combining, as he did, more than ten years' whaling experience with high scientific attainments. Above all others, he could be accepted both by practical seamen and also by students of ice forms. That the old terms of Scoresby did not all survive the period of indifference to polar work, in spite of Markham and Mill, is an indication either that their usefulness has ceased or that the original usage has changed once and for all. A restatement of terms is therefore now necessary. Where possible, the actual phrases of Scoresby and of his successors, Markham and Mill, are still used. The principle adopted, however, is to give preference to the words actually used by the polar seamen themselves. The following authorities have been followed as closely as possible. W. Scoresby, Jr., in An Account of the Arctic Regions, 1820, Volume 1, pages 225 through 233, 
and 238 through 241. C. R. Markham and H. R. Mill in The Antarctic Manual, 1901, pages 14 through 16. J. Payer, New Lands Within the Arctic Circle, 1876, volume 1, pages 3 through 14. W. S. Bruce, Polar Exploration, in Home University Library, copyright 1911, pages 54 through 71. Reference should also be made to the annual publication of the Danish Meteorological Institute showing the Arctic ice conditions of the previous summer. This is published in both Danish and English, so that the terms used there are bound to have a very wide acceptance. It is hoped, therefore, that they may be the means of preventing the Antarctic terminology following a different line of evolution, for but seldom is a seaman found nowadays who knows both polar regions. On the Danish charts, six different kinds of sea ice are marked, namely unbroken polar ice, land flow, great ice fields, tight pack ice, open ice, bay ice, and brash. With the exception of bay ice, which is more generally known as young ice, all these terms pass current in the Antarctic. Slush or sludge. The initial stages in the freezing of seawater, when its consistency becomes gluey or soupy. The term is also used, but not commonly, for brash ice still further broken down. Pancake ice. Small circular flows with raised rims, due to the break-up in a generally ruffled sea of the newly formed ice into pieces which strike against each other and so form turned-up edges. Young ice. Apply to all unhummocked ice up to about a foot in thickness. Owing to the fibrous or platy structure, the flows crack easily, and where the ice is not over thick, a ship under steam cuts a passage without much difficulty. Young ice may originate from the coalescence of pancakes, where the water is slightly ruffled, or else be a sheet of black ice covered maybe with ice flowers, formed by the freezing of a smooth sheet of seawater. In the Arctic, it has been the custom to call this form of ice bay ice, in the Antarctic, however, the latter term is wrongly used for land flows, fast ice, etc., and has been so misapplied consistently for fifteen years. The term bay ice should possibly, therefore, be dropped altogether, especially since, even in the Arctic, its meaning is not altogether a rigid one, as it may denote, firstly, the gluey slush which forms when seawater freezes, and secondly, the firm level sheet ultimately produced. Land flows. Heavy but not necessarily hummocked ice, with generally a deep snow covering, which has remained held up in the position of growth by the enclosing nature of some feature of the coast, or by grounded bergs throughout the summer season when most of the ice breaks out. Its thickness is therefore above the average. Has been called at various times fast ice, coast ice, land ice, bay ice by Shackleton and David and the Sharkart expedition and possibly what Dragowski calls shelf ice, is not very different. Flow. An area of ice, level or hummocked, whose limits are within sight. Includes all sizes between brash on the one hand and fields on the other. Light flows are between one and two feet in thickness, anything thinner being young ice. Those exceeding two feet in thickness are termed heavy flows, being generally hummocked, and in the Antarctic, at any rate, covered by fairly deep snow. Field. A sheet of ice of such extent that its limits cannot be seen from the masthead. 
hummocking, includes all the processes of pressure formation whereby level young ice becomes broken up and built up into hummocky flows, the most suitable term for what has also been called old pack and screwed pack by David and Scholleneis by German writers. In contrast to young ice, the structure is no longer fibrous, but becomes spotted or bubbly, a certain percentage of salt drains away, and the ice becomes almost translucent. The pack is a term very often used in a wide sense to include any area of sea ice, no matter what form it takes or how disposed. The French term is banquise de derive. Pack ice. A more restricted use than the above, to include hummocky flows or close areas of young ice and light flows. Pack ice is close or tight.